Want to know why your interiors or images don't look like the ones you see on your favorite social media feeds? What if I said I could let you know and show you what's missing and how to transform your spaces with clarity and confidence? The truth is creating beautiful interiors is simple when you know the right strategies, but most people go about it the wrong way. This is why I created the Styling Masterclass. It's the only program that simplifies the art and science of styling, giving you the clarity and confidence to take your interiors to the next level and attract your dream customers or clients so you can make your creative dreams finally possible. This is for you if you're an interior designer or photographer, have an Airbnb, a homeware shop or e-commerce business, and you want your interiors to look like the ones you see in your favorite books, magazines or Instagram accounts. Come learn how to style using my signature method so you can elevate any interior and create compelling imagery, which is your most effective marketing tool if you're selling a product or service in the world of interiors. Any successful business owner knows that styling is your secret weapon to cut through the visual noise, stand out from the crowd and grow your business. Styling is something that you don't want to leave to chance. In today's world, images are everything. This is why leading interior designers and architects always use stylists to finesse their spaces for photography to make sure they've got incredible imagery that they can use for their socials and website. Come learn how to make styling not only an essential element, an easy way to create content for your socials and websites, but learn how it can propel the growth of your creative business. If you're serious about creating beautiful interiors and a business you love without struggling in obscurity, this is the program for you. I'm going to share my process and give insights that you're not going to get anywhere else because I've been working as a professional interior stylist for the past 15 years. The Styling Masterclass will give you that clarity and confidence you need to take action and connect with your dream customer or client so you can make your creative dreams possible. Go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level to learn more and enroll now. Enrollments are open for only a short time. So please, if you're interested and you're ready to take your interiors to the next level, go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level. I also grew up in apartments. And so the idea of small living was not new to me. It's something I feel really comfortable with. Um, I don't love big houses. I never saw myself living in a huge house. It's never, was never a goal of mine to live in a mansion or to have, you know, a giant, crazy architecturally designed house. So it really, it felt like home quite quickly, I think because of the size and because of the intimacy a small house creates just by existing. Welcome to Imprint, a podcast about creating a home and life you love. I'm Natalie Walton, an interior designer, stylist, and best-selling author focused on an holistic approach to homes. Each week, I'm sharing insights and interviews about the creative process to help you enhance both your interiors and well-being as well as provide you with the tools and resources to make considered and sustainable choices with all that you create. Hello everyone, welcome to Imprint. Today I'm excited to share my conversation with Holly McCauley, who is a designer. She is a designer of books, a graphic designer. She is the designer behind my book's style and also Home by the Sea. I have great admiration for her. We've worked on some other projects as well, and she has a very calm and grounding presence, even though she is actually quite busy in various creative projects, including running a gallery called Yeah Nice Gallery, which is in the Byron Bay region. We talk about simple living, small living. We talk about you know, being persistent and know the benefits of deadlines, all the things that um, I think that has really been the key to her success. And I hope that you enjoy learning more about Holly as much as I did. 
Hello, Holly. I am so excited to to speak to you today. Uh, it feels like a little bit of a treat because we get to we've sort of had the opportunity to work together a couple of times over the past couple of years on my books, and I would love to actually know a little bit more of your backstory. So often, where I like to start is just to kind of get a little bit of a sense of your environment growing up and how that might have infused your creativity and the sort of the path that you've gone on since then. So I should say welcome to the podcast and if you could just share a little bit about your backstory for those kind of early years and did you have any sense then that you would go on the journey that you've been on? Hi Natalie, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm very out of my comfort zone so thank you for pushing me to come and talk to you. Well not pushing but um, I'm looking forward to having a chat and as you mentioned we've worked together in the past so it's really nice to sit down and actually have a chat not about books and work and all the little nitty-gritty things um so I guess my upbringing was quite um alternative I grew up with two very creative parents who I think their worst nightmare would have been me not ending up in a creative field. So I definitely think that was inadvertently put on me from day one, not complaining at all. Um, they were, they lived in the, I grew up in Sydney and I guess my parents and their friends and who they surrounded themselves with were not your typical sort of, you know, suburban families. There was a lot of, um, creativity from an early age just in the way we lived and the people who came in and out of our home. Um, so I really think that having the parents that I had, I was always going to end up doing something a little different. I wasn't going to end up being a banker or an accountant. Do you have any siblings? I have a very mixed family. So I have two older brothers and an older sister from my dad's first marriage. And then I'm an only child for my mum. And my parents split up when I was really little. So I guess I grew up very adapting to lots of different situations, which has really been a blessing, not a curse, as I thought it was when I was a kid. So it's it's made me pretty resilient. Yeah, I was just curious to see, you know, whether whether you're because sometimes people can rebel, you know, and they can kind of go the other way. They can go against what, you know, all that creativity, because I've heard of that happening as well. So what about you yeah. one or the other? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess then if you're presented with, you know, this world of creativity, you could have kind of gone down any path in some ways. I'm curious when you were in those sort of more formative years, you know, at high school and when you're starting to think about what you might want to do when you kind of leave school, what were your thoughts then about what you wanted to do and and how has that evolved and changed, you know, since then? Well, I guess that's where I did kind of rebel against my parents in a way in that I didn't want to be, you know, you think of being creative, you want to be an artist or you want to be a musician or something like that. Whereas I, from a very early age, knew that I wanted to have a very practical career, but still be creative. I wanted to, from very young, um, I knew that I needed to support myself from as soon as I could. I really felt the need to have a creative career, but which was also a trade. So that's what really pushed me in the direction of design. In high school, I was really into art. It was my favorite subject. I was into art history and all that stuff. I was massively into photography. And I I think just being raised the way I was raised, I was constantly thinking, you know, how am I going to turn this into a life for myself? And once I got to those decision-making years, it sort of it pointed me in the direction of choosing graphic design um, because I saw it really as a trade that I could use straight away, which I know it's like very, um, or how do I put it? The I didn't want to, I was never really good at 
visual arts, I suppose. I was never going to be a painter or anything like that, but I all, I really just wanted to give myself something that would really, really be a steadfast way for me to look after myself as I sort of grew. Yeah, no, I can relate to that a lot. I mean, because for me, I I loved I love reading. Um, I wouldn't say like I love writing. I mean, I always wrote in journals, but I knew that I love books. I love books so much, but I I similarly had that thing of wanting to be kind of practical. Like I knew that I had to find some kind of practical outlet for it. So for me, I went into journalism. And that was in some ways, I mean, I, I did go to uni and, and I did actually ended up doing my master's in journalism, not that I necessarily needed to do that, but it was, yeah, it was like that practical application of being a writer because I just couldn't get my head around how could I live as just an author, you know? <laughs> like, yes, just, I totally, yeah. I totally agree. And that's exactly where I'm coming from. And I saw the need from a really early age, like I need to support myself as soon as I can. And although maybe it would be lovely to dabble in this and that. I was like always being quite a practical child and a practical adult as it turns out. So I was really, and I guess that was something I'm, that's something I'm super grateful is like the foresight I had at a young age to really just sort of stick with it. And I'm all like, I run an art gallery now and I'm all for artists being artists, but it just was I just think there are so many like you said different facets of creativity and I really wanted to hone in the skills that I had to really make it a practical thing for me and so can you just share then like when you left school did you did you go to college or did you kind of go to like somewhere where you learned graphic design or were you more learning on the job and and what were some of those early kind of career how did you end up because I know that you ended up in book publishing but you know how did you get to that point yeah so straight out of high school I applied for uni and got into UTS doing a visual communications course which is kind of like you it is you end up being doing graphic design but it's quite a broad um, degree where you start off in your first year doing lots of different things kind of like art school but for um more of like an applied design outcome so instead of like in art school you'd do you know a bit of painting a bit of photography a bit of printmaking a bit of weaving so for this course in our first year we did um you know we did a bit of web design a bit of animation a lot of typography um we did a lot of hands-on stuff like screen printing and lino printing and all that which was really great and there was also like quite a heavy focus on um design history which I found super interesting and, you know, sort of diving into those really important schools like Bauhaus and, you know, really learning all that practical stuff, which you don't get in high school. I feel like in high school, at least when I was at school, you know, you just, you focus a lot on the classics and, you know, this was really opened my eyes to a world beyond the fine arts, I suppose. And, you know, it really stuck with me. Yeah. And, and so then how did you then get into book publishing? Was that sort of one of your early jobs? Um, it actually, or kind of, I had always, after a couple of years at uni, I really discovered that my design, my love of design was something that was going to marry images and typography together. And um, this was at a time, this was a, a while ago that I was at uni, but there was a big print magazine culture at the time this is like the mid 2000s I guess um so there's a there was a lot of um a return back to manual printmaking um manual book binding creating zines paste ups all that kind of stuff was like big not necessarily in the curriculum that I was studying but amongst my peers everyone was doing that kind of thing and I just just realize you know not into web design I'm not into animation which a lot of people I went to uni with were into that I was really into print publication I just fell in love with like paper stocks and typography and all that stuff and I straight out of uni I managed to get my first job was working as the creative assistant at Frankie magazine which is like the dream job when you're 21 and you're straight out of design school. So, um, yeah, I worked under two amazing women 
Lou Bannister and Lara Burke, who now run Lunch Lady magazine. So they really gave me my baptism into all things print. And I worked with them for ages. Or a few, well, it's not really ages, it's ages when you're in your early 20s, maybe four years. And, um, and then when they left the magazine, I also left. And I just by chance was offered maybe six months after quitting Frankie, which was all I knew. Um, I was offered a maternity cover contract through a friend of a friend of a friend at Penguin in Sydney. Um, and I was living up in Byron at the time and my partner and I were just like, you know what, we'll just give it a go. We'll move back to Sydney and you can do this book design job because it sounds like a dream and something you'd be really good at. So I guess that was my first introduction. It was just, it just came upon me. I didn't actively look it out, but it kind, it kind of did feel like in terms of the practical craft of, um, you know, laying out publications was the next step was from magazines to go to books. Yeah, no, completely. So what were some of the big lessons that you worked at learnt in that time of book publishing? Because, and even just in, you know, relation to graphic design in general, because I think that so many of us these days have to have some kind of touch point with, with graphic design and it could be our website or, you know, even things like um, stories on Instagram, you know, there's so many different elements that we have, I think, more and more access to this now. A lot of people who listen to this podcast are either interior designers or work in that kind of world and probably have to put mood boards together. So what can you share that are sort of some of the, the foundations, I guess, or some tips that you really sort of, when you're designing, you sort of, this is what you're trying to achieve. And I know that it obviously will depend brief to brief, but are there some kind of core principles or things that you kind of come back to or remind yourself of when you are designing um, whatever it is? Yeah, I think first and foremost, the, the design principle that I follow always and always have since those early days is that form follows function, which is a classic idea in many facets of the arts and design. Um, so essentially, you know, you need to convey the message that you're trying to convey and then all the visuals, all the aesthetics come after that. So I think that the play, the, the, the place in which so many people can get muddled is that um, there's so much focus on the end result, you know, the end look of something. But if it doesn't form its function, it essentially doesn't work. So I think that the – and because I do this every day, I, I never think back. So it's interesting you've asked me this because it's forced me to kind of explain how you do that in terms of a process from start to end. But I think that um, you need to really – decide what it is that you're trying to achieve and what is the function of the piece of design that you're working on and then you kind of work backwards from there so I think a lot of a lot of people may have this beautiful idea of an outcome that they want to achieve but if it doesn't come back to the reason why it was made then I feel like it's it doesn't need to exist yeah so let's take the example of maybe say a website, you know, if somebody is, um, or a logo, whichever, you know, you feel is easier to explain, you know, if you're trying to design one of those kind of things, what, like, what are some of the, I don't know, I guess like questions that you might be, should ask yourself or the, the things that you should try and avoid, you know, can you kind of give a bit of an example? Yeah, it all, it all really comes down to very, very simple things like legibility, can it be read? You might have something in your mind like, oh, I want my logo to be really, um, I don't know, extravagant and have a lot of elements going on. But at the end of the day, if someone viewing your logo for the first time can't decipher what it is that you do, then it's an unsuccessful piece of design. Um, I've also always thought, like always followed the idea. And I feel like this is particularly something purely because of the time that I studied, like the, the, the design trends of when I 
was like really sort of cutting my teeth is that less is more white space is always your friend. Um, and I feel like that's something that's really, you know, a message can get really clouded if there's too much going on, but in the same thought, you can still have a very comprehensive, bold, graphic, colorful piece of design, um, that tells your story without the design getting in the way, I suppose. Yeah, no, I think they're really, really good um, principles to keep in mind because, I mean, when you said that about, you know, the less is more, and I mean, I, I try and embrace that in so many areas of my life, but I think that I kind of came from a magazine background where it was it was quite a busy magazine. You know, it was always about like, let's put as many layers as, you know, badges, yes. you know, straps, all of that kind of stuff on. And I came from like the complete other end of this, of the scale with like a really arty indie magazine where it was, oh, the more white space, the better, the less ads, the better. Yeah. And, and so I had to kind of really, um, sort of teach myself to to pair that back but I can see the same principle applies when you're creating interiors too you know like you need to have that negative space so that you can actually definitely take in what you're looking at so yeah I think that's really helpful so now tell me about um you also are a co-owner of a gallery in the Byron area called yeah nice gallery is it that's right isn't it yeah nice yes yes yeah so tell me how that came about and, um, yeah, I'd love to know, you know, why you decided to do that and, and how you kind of juggle all the things. I think I definitely, one of the questions I thought I have to ask Holly about this is I feel like you have such a calm presence with yourself and yet I know you do a lot of things and that's something that I really admire about you is that you know, you've got lots of different projects on the go, but you, you never seem flustered. You never seem stressed. <laughs> so you're going oh, to share, such a compliment. <laughs> you're going to share <laughs> <Thank> your you. <laughs> secrets. <laughs> so tell us about Yeah um, Nice and, and how you managed to do all the things. Um, so Yeah Nice came about, I co-owned the gallery with one of my best friends, Geordie, who's a visual artist herself. And we, well, had always spoken about how cool would it be to open a shop or to have a space where we could do cool stuff. We didn't even know what it would look like. Um, so the idea for the gallery came about just over a few glasses of wine, maybe a few bottles um, of thinking, you know, that we really felt in Byron there was a gap in the art scene here after a few other galleries have clo had closed down for um, – embracing contemporary emerging art that was accessible, beautiful and approachable. Um, so the complete opposite to high, a high brow gallery or an institution, but it needed to have the calibre of the calibre of art had to be high, but the vibe had to be loose and fun. Um, so it just ha happened that a space came up in Mullum down in the old industrial estate, um, friends of ours were giving up a space. It was in an old banana packing shed at the back of Mullum, um, almost looked like a demountable with a roller door. And so we jumped at the chance to just give it a go. The rent was super cheap. So we thought, you know, we'll put in a few hundred bucks each, you know, do it for a month. And if it fails, then we can just say it was something fun we did for a month. So there was no, I think the whole reason that we were able to make the gallery happen was because it was very non-committal. We didn't have to take out a business loan. We didn't need a lot of inventory. We didn't need all the, the big adult stuff that comes along usually with opening a business. So we just thought we'd do it for our friends, for the community and see what happened. So this is in 2018 towards the end and we just um, got keys for the old banana packing shed. We painted the roller door pink. We painted the inside um, and then we got together our first group show, which was just a big mix of friends, people in that local area, people who we had worked with before, come cross paths with, and it turned out to be something that um, the community really embraced and loved and it was a hit, the first show, and 
So we just kept rolling with it and we just had the mentality of let's just do it until it doesn't work anymore. And um, we just had our little formula of doing one show a month and it worked really well. The old gallery didn't have any foot traffic. So it was, we kind of said we were by appointment only, but we were never there and no one ever made an appointment, but we would just throw these really fun opening nights once a month on a Friday night where people would come, drink beers, have hot dogs, talk, buy art or not buy art or um, just like it turned out to be a really great place to gather. And then it's just sort of snowballed from there. We were able to get a lease on a new space in the Byron Industrial Estate just because we felt like the caliber of art was amazing and the space was quirky and grungy, but we just felt we needed to step it up a notch so that we can get foot traffic so that we could have um, bigger pieces in scale so that we could host events if we needed to and just to feel like it was a little bit more serious than just having a fun party once a month. So we're now located in the Byron Industrial Estate when we've been there since 2020. And um, our formula is still exactly the same. We just host one show a month or so. We have a fun opening night on the Friday. People drink beer. People come and look at art. And we've just it's, – it's worked because Geordie and I both really wanted to have our own something that was outside of our nine-to-five jobs. And we also both had an issue with – there's not Geordie is an amazing artist and um she does that in her own right but there was nothing that we thought we could make together in terms of like a product or something that we would want to would want to sell to people and there's also you know both of us had a really conscious thought that we don't want to make more stuff to put out in the world purely just to you know make money so it's just become this perfect business model for us where we can support artists we can provide a safe fun space for people to come if they want to to come and look at art to not feel pressure to buy to not feel like they're out of place um we have such a wide range of clientele from people who um are collectors who will now buy something from us multiple times a year from different artists and they're on the phone to us before shows open just to try and get a sneak peek and put a deposit on a piece no matter what the price and then there are other people in the community who are friends acquaintances not friends who maybe have saved up for three or four years to buy their first piece of art and it's the most thought out big decision that they've ever made and we're so glad that we can cater to that as well so it really has become this like perfect little combination of all the things that we believe in and our values kind of you know, it all aligns with our values and it aligns with Geordie being a practicing artist. It allows me who I appreciate art so much, but I'm not an artist. I'm not, you know, hands-on like that, but I can surround myself in art and then I can, we can in turn support artists and give them a place to, you know, to, to show their wares. Yeah. I have to ask, um, in relation to that, I think that art is something, I mean, I, I've always loved art, but I think that it's something that a, a lot of people struggle with. They sort of, they want to buy art, but they're worried that, you know, they will, they'll buy something that they regret buying it or, you know, cause it often can be a bit of an investment. What do you think about that? What are your thoughts on the type of art that you should buy for your home and, and how to how to get it right so that you're sort of not, you know, a couple of years down the track feeling like you regret that, you know, like, yeah, it doesn't really like that was, <laughs> that was kind of who I was then, but it's not really who I yeah, am now. Totally. Well, I think as well, art can be so intimidating because the way it kind of is now, there's these big institutions, then there's these like very highbrow um private galleries where pieces of work you know they start within the tens of thousands of dollars and then there's also um with like fast cheap production there's a lot of like poster places where you can buy reproductions and all that and I'd like to think that we sit in the middle ground where we're where 
encouraging people to learn the story behind the artist and where they've come from. And so with our like small sort of intimate space, we can allow for that to happen with artist talks and all that kind of, all that kind of jazz that comes with it. And, um, and then I think for your question about how do you know whether an artwork is for you, I think you have to, it really is a gut feeling and potentially it is less to do with the the piece of art and maybe it's more to do with the artist and their story and the story behind the artwork. I really would encourage people who are um, new to collecting art to really do their research into where the artist has come from, what their story is, what their background is. And as soon as you know that, each piece is going to have so much more meaning to you. And I think that they, like a work will definitely, it sounds so cliche, but it will speak to you and it will, you know, it'll, it'll have, it'll have like a, an impact on you when you look at it. And I think that it is a really, you know, big decision if you're spending like a few grand on a piece of art, but you really just, just go with your gut and avoid trends. Um, if there's one artist that you love, you can own multiple pieces by them, which is always something that's really great. Like you don't have to always be on the lookout for this, like the hot new next artist. Like if there's an artist that's been around for a while and you kind of follow them and you love what they're about, maybe it is time to invest in someone like that. Yeah, no, I, I think that is such a such a um, a good and kind of powerful example, you know, powerful message to share about art because I think, you know, sort of saying that to really connect with it so it's not just a visual thing that you're adding to your home but it's actually a meaningful object. You know, I talk about this a lot with the things that we have in our homes and, you know, that you want to look around and know the story behind all, all the pieces and I think when when you do, I think you're actually less likely to tire of it. You know, you're less likely to sort of lose that connection because it's actually deeper than a surface connection. So, um, yeah, I think that's a beautiful message to share. Um, now, let's get to this, how you manage to stay calm doing all the things oh. that you do. <laughs> a su surface level calm. Maybe I've really honed in on the surface level calm. <laughs> Well, like I said, you certainly seem it very much to me, you know, you don't get flustered and um, I know that you have a lot of projects on the go. <clears throat> Excuse me. You've got obviously the gallery, uh, you do freelance work. I mean, you, you still do book design. You, you know, you obviously worked on my books. Uh, I know that you work with some local brands as well. Um, and you've got, you know, two children and, and all of that. So, I mean, I, I often actually ask people how you, how you manage your days, how you manage your time, like what works for you? What do you find works for you so that you can actually do all the things that you do? I maybe look like I've got it all together, but <laughs> I'm not sure if I do. I, there's definitely, um, I've always had lots of things on the go and I feel like I like to be busy um I like to feel like it's kind of that old school mentality of like I want to feel like I'm doing stuff like I'm not one to be idle which I wish I could be more like that but I like to be doing stuff and so I think I often complain about being too busy but then I think if you took some projects off my plate I'd complain that I was bored um so I, I think for me, just being, I'm pretty practical. Um, I'm pretty like no nonsense and I just have to structure my week around my work and deadlines and my kids. And that's always been, um, something that if I know what's coming, then I can be prepared for it. I, you know, always, feel like there's an unfinished job. So I'm probably not the best at switching off. Um, but I think I've been able to do it with my um, partner being supportive. We both lead busy lives and he's supportive of me being busy and he's supportive of sharing the load with our kids. So I'm really lucky in the fact that I still get to do all the things that I love to do and still you know, do the family stuff. And like I said, if you told me that, you know, I could have a, 
you know, all the projects were cancelled for the rest of the year. For a moment, I'd be really excited, but then give me like two weeks in, I'd be twiddling my thumbs and calling you saying, give me my projects back. So I think that just, and having worked, I think from, you know, I started working when I was 14, like casual jobs and I haven't stopped since. And I, I feel like it definitely early days having kids, um, it was tricky and I didn't stop and I kept working and I burnt out. But now I feel like my kids are that little bit older and I've just honed in on getting the balance right. And I would, I would rather, you know, spend a whole day with my kids and then work really late into the night to get stuff done. Yeah. I think, I mean, cause I know that I see you, um, you know, in Bangalore, walking your daughters to school and, you know, you definitely, you know, you're, you're there and you're present with your kids and, you know, doing different things around Bangalore. And, um, but I know obviously, yes, you still work, you know, other times. And I think the impression that I get and tell me if I'm wrong is I feel like you don't sweat the small stuff. Would you say that's accurate? I'd like to think so. Um, I definitely have my moments. But I, I think that I just, and I also have the mindset of like, it has to be done. So just do it. No matter if that's walking your kids to school, yeah, you've got to get them to school on time. So just do it. You've got a deadline that's approaching. Yeah. You've just got to get it done before the deadline and you just do what you need to do to get it done. And everything, you know, if you've got lots of things on the go, that time will pass, you'll get a downtime and, um, that's that's all sort of part of the ebbs and flows. And I think that since having kids, I definitely changed up my working life. So I was working nine to five, five days a week since my first job out of uni. And then I kind of went to part-time when I had Della working only a couple of days a week. And it was a real juggle trying to, you know, earn enough money to make ends meet and work the jobs I wanted to work and then look after the the kids. But now I just feel like, and if I had told myself this 10 years ago that I would have a career where a few days a week I'm working at for this um, local brand, another few days I'm sitting in an art gallery that I own with my best friend and I have projects that allow me to work around my kids, I would have said, like, that's not possible. So I think that and it's just fallen in my lap that way after like, yeah, a lot of years of working really hard. I've somehow like curated my working life to be very fluid and I'm not sitting in the same place five days a week, which I had done. And I enjoyed that, but it's the season of my life now is um, I'm in a place where I can, you know, float around. I can have a meeting here. I can, you know, go into the gallery late if I want to walk my kid to school and to have that flexibility. It's been a long time coming to have that flexibility, but I think that's really made my life a lot easier and allowed me to keep doing the things I love doing. Yeah. I think you're a little bit like me in that sense as well. It's, I think we both come from that magazine background where you, you constantly have a deadline. And so, you know, you can't procrastinate, like you can't. Yes. Um, and you like, know, if it's not, if off. you don't do it, no one's doing it for you. Yeah. And then you're done. Yeah. And so there's no, and I think I still like, I think that's been actually probably an amazing lesson and it set me well for now. And yeah, because if you don't do it, no one's doing it for you. And I think that that's how I live my life probably. And maybe I expected to be too much from other people yeah. to be more like that. But I think that it just, it's really, yeah, it's really powerful in the sense that, you know, if you don't get it done, then that magazine doesn't go to press. Like it has to go to press. So you've got to do what you've got to do to get it to press. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I I think that's really helped me with so many projects as well. Um, And I want to ask you about, so we, like I said, you designed my book styles and you did it so beautifully. Lots of negative white space in that. beautiful (laughs) and um and also my most recent book which is home by the sea which is um some of the homes in our local region and including you know your home is in there as well and I want to ask you about that because that home now you've recently moved but that home was your home for a very long time it was a very small home and I think that 
I just love what you, how you went about creating it and that you did, you know, you didn't let that put you off the size of it. Like you really made the most of that space. And I would love if you could just share a little bit about the story of creating that home and designing small spaces and, and how you did make the most of that home. Yes. Yeah, so we bought the home about seven years ago and it was my partner and I, it was our first home purchase and it was a very big deal. And the home was literally the cheapest one on the market and classic story of like buy the worst house on the best street. And we didn't know it at the time, but we bought in Bangalore and it really like it was a really smart decision that we made all those years ago. When we purchased the house, um, it was just a fibro shack. The internal space was 60 meters squared. So really small, but it had this great layout. I don't know how they did it, but it did not feel like 60 meters squared. Um, it was really open, um, aesthetically horrible. Um, but we knew, you know, we, we knew what we could afford. So we bought the cheapest house and we just wanted to kind of, we were ready to make our little home with whatever we could, you know? So I guess the story behind the home is that it started off really horrible and we made it really nice over seven years. So we did like a seven year renovation. Um, and we didn't have a renovation budget. So the way that the house slowly improved aesthetically over the years were each paycheck would buy a few lengths of decking. We might buy, you know, a tin of paint. And um, my partner did most of the hard yakka himself, which obviously made it doable for us. Um, so I think that the the way we went about it was we just wanted to make a home that felt homely, that felt easy and suited the climate. Um, we lived, it's a really warm area. There was really thick carpet. So that was the first thing to go. And we just really chipped away at it is like the only, the best way I can describe the transformation of our home was chipping away really slowly, really laboriously. Um, we didn't really have a design aesthetic that we wanted to create for our home. We didn't have that luxury to say, you know, we didn't create mood boards. We didn't, you know, consult designers. We didn't talk to architects. We literally just did what we could afford to do to make our home feel nice for us. So um, I was talking to um, my brother-in-law recently and he said, he's an architect, and he said, the less money you have, the easier your decisions which now I think back and I'm like, oh, 100%. We didn't make any decisions. We just did what we could do, which, you know, we did ply cabinetry. There was a concrete slab under the carpet, which my partner hand polished with a grinder. <laughs> there was um, a lot of bush out the front. So we just chipped away at that and added a deck, which totally transformed the house straight away. We bought um, some wooden bifold doors off Gumtree to replace the aluminium warped sliding doors that went onto the deck um there was no real kitchen to start with so we had a bit of a blank canvas for that one but um I also grew up in apartments and so the idea of small living was not new to me it's something I feel really comfortable with um I don't love big houses I never saw myself living in a huge house it's never was never a goal of mine to live in a mansion or to have you know a giant crazy architecturally designed house so it really it felt like home quite quickly I think because of the size and because of the intimacy a small house creates just by existing and so I don't guess I don't have any like tips on how to live small except just to like I guess it's ingrained in me to live small so it didn't feel like too much of an adjustment um but a lot of white paint helps it always helps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and what I, what I think that is, um, beautiful, you know, we did an, a story for imprint journal on, um, on your home as well. And, and how so much of that, you know, you've got so many meaningful things in your home as well, like art from friends and all of those things. And I think they, they all help, but I, I want to ask, um, you know, were you, cause I'm incredibly impatient 
And <laughs> it's something that I'm working on. But over those seven years, were you were you sort of patient about it? And you just thought, you know, like it will happen when it happens? Or, you know, how did you how did you kind of tackle that side of things? I think there were definitely moments of feeling really impatient about things not being done, like really practical things like kitchen and plumbing and tiling and stuff, which all my partner all did himself pretty much, um, which is I'm so lucky for that. But I think when you're, I think that um, the joy of us being able to even buy a house when we thought maybe that was never something we were going, going to do that outweighs the impatience of making it perfect. I think we were just so happy to have this little slice of something that was ours and, you know, it. we did end up flipping it completely but it was never like we bought the house to renovate, to sell, to flip, to, you know, turn a profit or anything. So it really, and I think as well when you're in it and there was no deadline for us, the, like unlike a new build or a big renovation where you're moving out, like we were living in it every day. Nick was tinkering away at things. So it never felt, I think maybe if we had a deadline or if we had to move out for months on end in order to get things done, I would have really felt that impatience and felt like a bit edgy about it. But because it was just a really slow burn, um, it didn't feel like, it was weighing on me, it not being perfect from day one. Yeah, no, I, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, before we get to sort of our last um, little questions that I like to ask everyone, I do just also want to ask you about um, Instagram and all of that, because, you know, I think it's something that so many of us, you know, we have to use in some capacity for work whether, you know, with you, whether it's for your design work, whether it's for the gallery and, you know, it's such an important tool for marketing and connecting with like-minded people. But, you know, obviously there's the flip side of it, which we all know too well. How do you choose to show up on Instagram? What do you find works well for you? And I would just, yeah, I thought it could be helpful if you can share a little bit of an insight into your relationship with it. Yeah, I think, I tried promoting my design work on Instagram a few years ago and it just felt weird and um, didn't work for me. I didn't have any real strategy behind it. And I think like coming in when Instagram first start first started, it was just like, you know, be around your friends and catch up and it was social, whereas now it's very, very business-minded. So I think I just wear two hats, I guess, when I'm on Instagram. Like I really still enjoy it and love it for looking at beautiful imagery for inspiration, but um, seeing my friends and family who I don't see often. And even the ones I see often, like I really like that social side to it. And then I think I wear another hat when I um, run the Instagram for our gallery, which is of course more business minded, but it also is less personal, which I feel is like a really good thing. And um, we're lucky Geordie and I in the fact that our, um, the gallery isn't, it's not about us. Like we never have to show up on social media as ourselves. It's always about the artists. It's always about the works that we have in here. It's always about um, what's happening and when it's like about promoting in real life gatherings, which I think is really good. Um, so I think I would struggle more with it if I had to be more self-promoting on Instagram. But it's a funny world that this has, <laughs> that it's all, everything weighs on, on it. But we found it really helpful with the gallery because we are hosting live events and because we want people to come and we want to spread word about, you know, it's, we, we sell works over Instagram, which is amazing, but that's not its sole purpose for us. It's more about pe letting people know what's happening in our space physically. And I feel like it also gives people who don't live locally, like we like to give them a bit of an insight as to what's going on. So I think I would struggle more with it if I was selling product or, you know, or if I was promoting myself as a designer on there but at the moment the relationship with Instagram seems fine and is that what um your sort of main I guess marketing strategy you know for want of a better word 
is, I mean, I guess a lot of it is probably word of mouth and, you know, reliant on to some degree of the artists themselves to promote their exhibition at your gallery. But, you know, how, you know, how do you kind of get people in the gallery? You know, what, what is your kind of your strategy with that? Yeah, it is. I think it's beneficial that we live in a small town and that everyone knows everyone and everyone knows what everyone else is doing on a Friday night. So that really helps. I think we would have to change the business model if we were in a big city. Um, It works that people just walk past and we can tell them what's happening and then they tell 10 friends and then there's 20 extra people at the next opening. I guess we don't really have a marketing strategy, but all we do rely heavily on social media just to get the word out, which annoys me, but it's also so convenient. Um, when we first started in Mullum before anyone knew who we were, we did a lot of like posters and signage and, you know, mail drops and more of like guerrilla marketing, I guess, um, which really worked at the time. But now we feel like we've got a really solid, um, supportive customer base and not just customers who buy work, but p- there's people who just show up to the show shows every month. And just because they love looking at the art and we love that, like that's not a monetary transaction, but it's works. It works really well for us. So, um, I guess we'll just keep doing that till Instagram <laughs> crashes and dies <laughs> and then we'll have to rethink it. Um, and I, sorry, just one last question on that, because obviously, you know, it's one thing to kind of have this dream of having a kind of creative business, whether it's a gallery, whether it's a shop, whatever that is. And another thing to, to kind of actually either make a living from that or, you know, make it financially viable. What are some of the lessons? Because I'm sure that you two have learned, you know, some valuable lessons on your journey. I mean, you're quite a few years into it now. What are some of the lessons specifically in relation to sort of running that type of creative business that you've learned? Yeah. Well, let me start off by saying we both still have day jobs and the gallery is still very much a passion project for us. It's not quite paying all the bills just yet, but our biggest, um, not lesson learned, but I guess piece of advice is outsource. If you can't do it, pay someone else to do it. And we weren't in a position to do that until recently, but we, we have like an amazing bookkeeper. Just know what your strengths are and what your business partner's strengths are and divide and conquer. And then wherever there are gaps, outsource. Yeah, that's such good advice. All right, we'll get into the, the last sort of little batch of questions and um, I look forward to hearing your answers with these. So okay. um, <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> so which five words would you say best describe you? Um, calm. Thank you, Natalie, for bringing that to my attention. <laughs> um, quiet. Happy. Um relaxed but also internally stressed (laughs) well there's five (laughs) yes that's enough what's the best lesson that you've learned this can be in life whatever what's one of the best lessons you've learned um oh that's so hard but I think and this I think there's so many ways to put this but I think just going with it and trusting in the process and things will work out some one way or another. Yeah, I believe that too. What's your proudest achievement? Um, the life that I've created with my partner and our two little girls. Yeah, beautiful. And what's been your best decision? Um... taking that very first job that I was offered at Frankie magazine because it um, forced me to move to the Northern Rivers, which was never on the cards, and 13 years later I'm still here and it's a place where I've um, raised my family. Cool. Who inspires you? My kids. Sweet. What about uh, what are you passionate about? I'm passionate about heaps of different things, but now I can't think of any. (laughs) Um, I'm passionate about supporting the arts 
and I'm passionate about um, living simply where possible and I'm passionate about um, putting as much effort as you can into relationships. I've got another one for you, which tell me okay. if I'm right <laughs> or wrong. You, you're passionate about Chinese food. Oh, yeah, I'm passionate about <laughs> Chinese food because I'm half Chinese, which not many people know when they look at me. But um, my mum is Chinese and an amazing Chinese cook. And living in a regional town, the Chinese food options are not amazing. So we've got to make it ourselves, us Chinese people. <laughs> what, what's your, um, your favourite Chinese restaurant in Sydney? And if you have one in Melbourne, what's one in Melbourne? Oh, I don't go to Melbourne very okay. often, but um, you really just can't go past Yumcha in Sydney, Chinatown or Melbourne, Chinatown. I recently went to the Bob Hawk Dining Hall and they've got an old school, new, trendy Chinese restaurant called Lucky Prawn, which was a hit. <laughs> it's good to know. Uh, we, we have yeah. to, we have to um, give a little plug to your mum. Uh, is it Dumpling Baby? Oh, yeah. Mum makes dumplings under the name Dumpling Baby, which if I told her she'd be doing this like 15 years ago, she would have laughed at me because she has only just now embraced her Chinese culture and now she makes dumplings for a living. And you can find them in the freezer section of your local provador. It's <laughs> so good. Um, sorry, tangent. Uh, what dream do you still want to fulfill? Um. I really want to live overseas for at least a year and we're doing all the things that are stopping us from doing that, like having babies and buying houses and starting businesses. So that's on the cards and I would really, really love to do that, take my kids out of school and live and fully immerse ourselves in another country. Where, where would it be? Where, be, where are some of the places um, on your list? We've talked about Mexico, we've talked about Indonesia, even New Zealand where a lot of my family live, even though that wouldn't be much of a culture shock, it would still be a really nice change. Um, yeah, we'll see where see where it goes. It's still possible. Yes. <laughs> um, what are you reading? At the moment I'm reading a great novel called um, Fortunes of the Sky. I'm a full history nerd and... It's set in the 1800s in America and it's about um, a Chinese girl who's kidnapped, kidnapped from her home and brought to San Francisco and it's really interesting. It's not for everyone but I do love a really dark, serious um, fictional history. Hmm, interesting. What about, I've got to ask you this actually, what is one of your favourite books from a design point of view or, you know, couple if you if you can't think of one specifically like. yeah one that I go purely because of the time I went to uni the vice photo book I feel like sums up an era in of that time and it's one I've got on my shelf that I'll constantly go back to and also Mike Mills graphics and film is a really great design reference for me and has been on my shelf for many many years cool uh what are you listening to do you listen to podcasts or audiobooks or maybe music, whatever, whatever it is for you. I listen to audiobooks when I'm working. Um, and I like it makes me sad because I also love physical books so much. It's like I listen to the audiobook and then I've got to go buy the actual book so that I can have it on my shelf. And um, I listen to really nerdy history podcasts. And um, I also listen, we always have music playing in the house so we've got a record player and then my partner hates it when I put on like a Spotify mixtape because it's not the same as listening to records but it's like the lazy option cool and finally what piece of advice would you give to your younger self stick with it so good there's that that's there's the patience there's the persistence <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so good Thank you so much, Holly. It has been so fun to to hear a little bit more of your story, uh, get a little bit more of an insight into your world. I so appreciate your beautiful design work in my books um, and for being a part of them. And um, yeah, just want to say thank you so much.
Thank you so much for having me, Natalie. It was so nice to chat. All of the links and info for this episode are at nataliewalton.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can get a direct download of the latest episode. And I really appreciate when you take a minute to rate and review, as well as share the love with someone you know who might benefit from this episode or on social media. If you'd like to access a range of free resources, come visit my website, nataliewalton.com. Thank you to Jaeger Media for producing this podcast. And I would also like to acknowledge the people of the Bundjalung Nation where it was recorded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I look forward to connecting again soon. I'm Natalie Walton and you've been listening to Imprint. Imprint.